Hey everyone, back again. Let's continue on with Capital Volume 3. Now we're going to be starting from Part 6, specifically Chapter 37, and we're going to work all the way up to Chapter 40, including Chapter 40, and we'll stop on Chapter 41. Now before jumping into it, go and check out all of the previous parts before this, because otherwise you're going to be totally lost. Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find links for these things in the descriptions, the titles of my handles in the descriptions there. If you want to help me out, sharing this is really the best way to do it. If you happen to be on Marxist pages on Facebook or wherever, you could share it there and I'm sure people would get a kick out of it. Or you could share it on any other platform. Or you could help me out monetarily via pa Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure. Anyways, yeah, let's jump into this here from part six, titled The Transformation of Surplus Profit into Ground Rent. In chapter 37, the introduction. So capitalism expropriates people from their own livelihoods and their own land. And this is the theme, a theme that has been coming up throughout the entirety of the three volumes, that capitalism strips people of their ability to work themselves for themselves on their own land or even the land of friends or family that they can work cooperatively on. Now, I think it's important to say that this does not mean that Marx wants to go back to a time of just agrarian living where people just live off the land from hand to mouth and then that's it. He's not saying that. Instead, he's describing one of the oppressive tendencies of capitalist production that takes people's own knowledge of the land, of work, of agriculture, takes it away from them, and transforms that knowledge into almost secret knowledge wielded only by capitalists at least in the capacity to actually go forward and put that knowledge to use by capitalists who just hire workers, buy up all the land with all of their wealth, and make it so that no basic everyday workers can actually own land and do these things for themselves. So this opens up the possibility for land ownership, of being a landowner, being a landlord. And the rent that is calculated out of being a landlord or how it is determined must come out of surplus value. Now, this is just the case on, on, on the whole. And that is because being a landlord is not productive work. Being a landlord doesn't mean that you are actually making a product or hiring people to make a product that can then be sold for surplus value, that is exploited labor. It means only, that is, being a landlord means only that you are just sucking up money to do nothing. So in this, I guess in this entire part, that is part six, and this is episode seven. Just, I don't know if I mentioned that yet. Anyways, episode seven, whatever. So in this whole part, he wants to consider this question of rent. Specifically, though, he wants to consider the question of rent in terms of agriculture, so he's not going to be so interested here in looking at rent in like a city. So let's say somebody owns some land and another person comes along who says, hey, I want to open up a factory here. How much will you charge me per month in rent or per year or whatever in order to set up a factory here? So he's he will talk about that a bit, but here he's more interested in agriculture and farming where somebody owns some land and then a capitalist comes along and says, hey, I could work as a farmer, I'll hire up all these people, and I will pay you, the landlord, rent. Now, this is only possible 
in a world in which private property is recognized as a way to acquire capital, as a way to um, earn more capital, which means you'll be able to earn more private property. So technically, and Marx is clear about this, private property existed before capitalism. I mean, you could you could have a piece of land that was yours, but in the way he's describing it here, discussing private property as a means to acquire more money, which will mean uh, a means to actually acquire more land, and that will tend towards the monopolization of all land in the hands of a few landowners, he's describing something fundamentally different here. And he, in a footnote, because I am uh, I am a masochist and I read the footnotes, in a footnote here, he attributes this in part to Hegel's philosophy. And what he attributes to Hegel is the idea that private property is almost a way by which to enter into self-realization. And he's certainly taking this from phenomenology of spirit, um, but also the philosophy of, philosophy of history, where the idea is, to put it quite simply, in order to... Oh, it's actually a really complicated idea. But I guess, in short, the idea is that by working, by being able to put oneself to work on the land or putting others to work on the land, you're able to actually fulfill a certain, um, I guess, self-realizing function. Now, for those particularly or very well in tune with Hegel's philosophy, you'd know that at the beginning of the phenomenology, when he's writing about the Lord and the bondsman, he suggests that the bondsman, by virtue of working on land that is not theirs, is actually opened up to a certain self-realization uh, possibility that is foreclosed to the landlord. So the bondsman, the person who has to work off their debt, works on a land that is a sign of what could, they could possibly be. That is the landlord. That is the, the Lord here. And so what that means is it opens up that possibility of transformation. By contrast, the landlord, the Lord, forecloses themselves that possibility because they view themselves as being complete as no longer needing to actually grow. They, they've essentially made it. And Hegel says that that's kind of a trap. Uh, if, you've, if you've reached that point where you don't feel like you have to grow anymore, you've actually regressed. But anyways, I, I digress. Private property is a necessary condition for the establishment of landowners, landlords, and or, or landlords and capitalists. Now, like I said, cap, uh, capitalism did not birth private property, it, you know, it, you know, it was owned by various families beforehand, various dynasties, maybe religious or social institutions, whatever. But capitalism does something new, and it liberates uh, private property from these institutions to earn capital through the employment of wage earners. Very much like we talked about in the last episode, I believe, and the one before that, talked about the way that merchant capital, while indicative of capitalism actually com comes before and sets the possible conditions for the formation of capitalism by taking wealth away from these old dynasties uh, in order to open up the possibility for everyday people ostensibly to gain wealth. So in oftentimes the capitalist won't actually own the land. Another capitalist will. This will be the landlord. And the farmer will only pay them ground rent from the amount of profit or the, the surplus value that they extract from the exploited labor. So now we need to think about this as, or this situation as being comprised of three classes. You have the worker who's earning a wage, 
You have the capitalist, who in this case is a farmer, who just is earning all of the profit, all of the surplus value. And then there is the landlord. So these are th they, these form the trinity of how we are to understand the formation of rent and how rent is allocated to the landlord. Now, what we're going to find here is that determining the value of rent, the price of rent, is actually a little bit of a difficult task, very much like it was difficult with interest in the previous episodes. So in this case, cultivated land and land that is just more fertile is going to be more valuable. So if a capitalist wants to appropriate some land, wants to cultivate some land, somebody that is a landlord who knows that that land is very fertile will probably charge more to that capitalist in the form of rent in order to allow them to work there, probably because there will be a high demand for that land. And this might even incentivize landlords to write up like short contracts so that there's going to be a quick turnover of tenants, uh, you know, farmers or capitalists who own the land or who work on the land in order to charge more to the next person. Because if there's a contract, you know, you're kind of trapped in that contract, the landlord's trapped yet. Yeah. The hard life, the landlord lives. Now, political economists have historically conflated or confused this thing called rent with what we've been talking about in the previous episodes, what Marx calls interest, or not just Marx, but what anyone calls interest. Now, what the landlord earns from the farmer out of the farmer's surplus value, it might look like interest, but this ignores the situations where ground rent can be earned purely from surplus value and not from interest. Because like for a, a whole slew of different reasons, I mean, the capitalists might uh, have borrowed money and that's what interest is, right? Interest is going to the person that they uh, borrowed money from, whereas rent is going to the person whose land they're sitting on. And there is a qualitative difference here. Now, if we take this idea further, that is understanding the distinction between ground rent and interest, we can really see how absurd it would be to actually conflate the two. So if, let's say, monthly rent was $100, so the farmer owed the, the landlord $100 a month, and let's say that interest rate at the time was 10%. Now let's pretend that interest and ground rent are the same thing. So if the interest rate is 10%, meaning that, and the rent is $100, that means that the total price of that land would be $1,000 because 10% is allocated supposedly. This is, again, if we're confusing ground rent and interest, that would mean that 100% of the rent being $1,000, which would cover the price of the land, uh, that would be $1,000. Now, Mark says, well, what if interest rates just jump to 20%, which they can do. They can do quite spontaneously. And that would mean then that the price of that land would no longer be $1,000 because it's no longer $100 representing 10%. It is now $500 because this $100 now represents 20%. Now this would mean then that as interest rate grows up, goes up, then the price of land comes down, which seems which is totally antithetical to how we should be understanding rent. 
there should be a relationship between rent and the price of the land, which he'll come to show is another absurd thing. So the point here is that if we just conflated interest rate and ground rent, what we would show or what would happen would be that if the interest rate run, went up like from 10 to 20%, what that would mean is that the price of land would come down, which is totally contradictory. And if we remember as well that as uh, capitalism progresses, the profit rate falls, which means that the interest rate will fall over time, this means that land will magically over time just fall in price. Now, consequently, the farmers will need to make up for the extra costs of land, likely by lowering their wages. And we can certainly see this today with the increase of the price of land without an increase in wages or in wages, which is simply a contradiction because if ground rent and interest are the same thing, that means that, as we've already shown, as interest rate falls, the price of land will go up and vice versa. As interest rate goes up with the example I gave, then the price will fall. So if capitalism progresses and the profit rate falls, interest will fall, meaning the rate, the um, price of land will go up, meaning that people are going to have to pay more. Farmers are going to have to pay more to the landlord because the price of the land is going to go up, which means that they are going to need to somehow cut costs, probably by taking it out of wages. Now here he makes an interesting side point, and it's at this point in the text that there are some disjointed uh, there are some disjointed moments that seem to fall outside of the overall uh, scope of the project that, you know, Marx was clearly approaching the end here. Uh, it's not always as clear or as elaborate as it could be, but he gives us this point. He says that this indigenous productivity of agricultural labor, and here we include simple gathering, hunting, fishing, stock raising, this is the basis of all surplus value just as all labor is originally first directed towards the appropriation and production of food. So this point connects to a number of different ideas in, in the entirety of the book. But the one that I want to focus on just briefly here is the justification for Marx's look at agriculture. And he's in part speaking to the physiocrats who view that um, all value derives from the land. All value can be traced back to what the land can yield because we all need what comes from the land. That is, we humans, we need food, and that comes from the land. Or maybe to be a little bit more broad, from the earth, including animals that uh, people can eat and anything else. So, this is why here he's focused on farming and he's focused on the question of farming because of all of the mysteries surrounding it within the capitalist economy, where it seems to be somewhat of a source of value, yet at the same time, that value is completely overshadowed by a desire to just extract as much profit and extract as much from the earth as possible, which is clearly, clearly unsustainable. And he also considers, and he just puts this in as a side point, that everything he's talking about here in terms of agriculture, and as we get into the weeds of rent, the price of rent, can also apply to mines, like mines where people extract like gold or coal from the earth. He says that everything he talks about with farms can be applied to mines as well. So anyways, that, that's a digression. So there's a distinction to be made between the types of land that we could be working on or understanding here in terms of rent. 
and that is agricultural land, so farms, and industrial land, which might be in the city, like a factory. The former, so farms, tend to be reserved to produce what is absolutely necessary, like food, whereas factories produce necessities, but also superficial things that we don't need. So maybe what'll be made more in factories is like clothing that everybody needs. Now between these two types of land, agriculture is gonna be largely limited by the land itself. If you have a crop of land, and for anyone who's worked on a farm, you definitely know this, you can only grow so much corn and he's really, you know, he's talking about Northern Europe here, not too North, it's Central Northern Europe. He's talking about um, areas where corn is kind of the primary source of food. You can only grow so much corn out of one piece of land. So in order to grow more corn, you have to expand outwards. Whereas with like a factory, you could very well build, uh, build more floors or build buildings with more floors. So you're able to actually earn more on the same plot of land or to produce more on the same plot of land. And as I've already said, rent will probably apply in both cases. And the rate of rent is going to be different depending on uh, each of these industries. So there's going to be ways in which, uh, by virtue of the fact that you can earn more on the same plot of land versus with agriculture where you have to expand outwards, rent is just gonna work differently. And Marx doesn't have the time in this book to actually get into the weeds of industrial rent. He focuses primarily on agricultural rent, which is kind of a shame because uh, as we're going to talk about with David invoking David Ricardo, it all comes down to the possibility of expansion, but just by pursuing more land. Whereas with industry, as I've already said, you could add floors and go upward, uh, which is just, it's, very, it's a very different situation. But what fascinates Marx in both cases is the way that capitalism naturalizes rent. And it naturalizes the idea that you must be paying rent to someone. And by extension, it naturalizes the idea that there must be landlords. But because ground rent, the rent of agricultural land, has a relationship, unlike interest, has a relationship with the price of that land, what that implies is that therefore there is a value to the land. In the case I gave before, where interest rate was, again, this is wrong, but let's say hypothetically it was right, 10% interest rate and you're paying $100 in rent, that means that the rent, the, the land is worth $1,000. But let's just pretend we're not talking about interest rate, let's say we're talking about rent and we aren't confusing the two. And let's say that rent representing the value of a price of land, it, it represents the value of, a price, of the price of land, then therefore that means that there is a value to the land, there is a price to it, which is totally unfathomable to Marx, and it should be, because land has not been brought about through labor, whereas like a shoe has been worked on by somebody or by many people and has come to the market and can then earn its price by virtue of the cost it, or of the amount of socially necessary labor that went into it. Now that's not the case for land. It's almost as though land just magically has value. When we know 
that value is really only determined by the amount of labor that goes into something. So it's totally absurd that, let's say there was a uh, an uninhabited island, and let's say this island happened to be huge. It would be strange if someone went in and said, oh, this piece of land is worth $10,000, and that one over there is worth 1000 and that one over there is worth 20 bucks." Yet, that seems to be the way that things work. But what is more interesting, and I think that we can just look at today to understand this, rent, and anyone living in major cities would know this, especially in Canada and in Toronto and Vancouver, rent just seems to be going up for no reason, which means that the price of the value of that land just seems to be going up. And no, no more work is done on them. The, the idea is that in order for the price to go up, at least this is the rule, in order for the price to go up, the price of rent, the landlord needs to do work on that land in order to make it more valuable, whatever that would mean. But that doesn't happen. Yet magically, the price of rent just seems to elevate as though by some kind of hocus pocus, some magic. It really does seem like all landowners just one day we're like, we could just raise the land, the the price of rent, because this is an inelastic good. People are always going to need to buy or rent land. They need a place to live. So they aren't going to be able to go somewhere else, especially if we all do it at the same time. Uh, and yeah, anyways, getting into conspiracy land here, which Marx doesn't shy away from. He invokes the Masons quite a few times in this, in this trilogy. But anyways, Let's get into, that puts us into chapter 38 here, titled Differential Rent in General. So here again, he specifies that he's dealing with agriculture and, you know, mostly farming, but everything he says could apply to uh, land, uh, to, to, could apply to mining, sorry. So differential rent is a, is a pretty easy, yet in a lot of ways complicated idea. And this is the idea in general. Differential rent refers to the differences in the price of rent on different lands. So he's going to go through in three, the three following chapters, go into three kinds of differential rent. So to just put them out there to very briefly, and we'll get into it in more detail, the first kind of differential rent is when there's a, a piece of land that has a pretty extraordinary resource on it. Let's say like a river. And in the capitalist economy, the landowner can say, hey, you know, to the capitalist, in order for you to actually rent this land, because you're going to be able to make so much product because you have this river that you're going to be able to use the energy from, I'm going to be able to charge rent much higher than if you were renting from someone else who uh, some other piece of land that doesn't have a river. So that's differential rent one, where there's some like extraordinary case where you happen to be able to uh, charge more for that piece of land. Now, differential rent two might just be referring to a case where one piece of land is just a little more fertile, or maybe even a lot more fertile than another piece of land. So there isn't like an extraordinary difference with like some very uh, specific resource that's available there. It's just referring to the different fertilities of the land. And then the third one, the third differential rent is going to apply to the differences in the history of capital that has been invested in those lands, where if one land has a bunch of capital already invested into it, 
And so there's already infrastructure, there might be buildings, there might be uh, equipment set up, then that can be charged for more in terms of rent. But like I said, we're going to get into each one of those as we go through here, but just so you know what to look forward to. So this is still chapter 38, differential rent in general. So he starts by saying or reminding us how more constant capital won't mean more value because other people in the market will just adopt that same tactic or that same uh, constant capital and that will result in a kind of equilibrium of prices. And the real source of value, of course, is through real human labor, which can be exploited above and beyond what it needs to actually keep workers alive. And I mean, uh, the political economist's dream is that workers will just be paid always enough to be able to live and to live good lives. Because to the political economists like Adam Smith and David Ricardo, it's in the capitalist's interest to keep them happy, keep them alive. That'll keep them as good workers, keep coming back and working hard. Whereas Marx has shown, using actual evidence, documentation, and so on, he's shown that capitalists don't care. There's always going to be more workers to take up the work, so they can just exploit people to death, literally, and then just have more people take over. It really doesn't matter to them. Now, as, a, as another point here that signals that you need real human labor in order to uh, create value is that you need to pay people who are going to earn just enough to buy products that you're making. Otherwise, you won't have a market to actually sell to. So what, what about, let's say hypothetically, if a factory has access to a natural resource that can generate energy like a river? Well, they will be able to more easily and more, I guess, consistently beat the market prices because they're saving so much on energy costs. Now, this might seem like a situation in which uh, they're going to be able to, you know, just beat everyone out of existence, all competition out of existence. And the same would apply to like agriculture, to, to a farm that sets up a, uh, I don't know, a water wheel that turns um, some mechanism that turns grain or some, or whatever, whatever the, the, um, whatever the job is that needs to get done. This is a case of differential rent, specifically the first kind of differential rent, where the price of that land with the exceptional, um, with the exceptional resource is going to be able to be sold in terms of rent higher than other pieces of land. And they are going to be able to still beat even though rent will probably be higher, they're still going to be able to beat, likely be able to beat their competition. And this is what will allow for the formation of various monopolies that uh, people like Adam Smith and David Ricardo seem to think could never form because the market will just um, level things out. But of course, there are these extraordinary situations where people are just going to be able to earn a whole lot more um, than other people, and they'll be able to form this monopoly. But the main winner here in this situation is not the farmer or the capitalist it is the landowner because they're going to be able to charge more so they're going to be able to take a bigger chunk out of the surplus value that the capitalist is, is extracting from workers because remember that river is not creating surplus value there's no value inherent value to the river it only allows the transformation of surplus value uh, into more rent for the landlord. 
So I think it's important here to explain David Ricardo's thesis from uh, the principles of political economy and taxation, which I've done videos on, if you want to go check those out. But I'm going to give you the rundown here just so you know what's going on. Now, in that book, David Ricardo says that the price of, of land, of rent, is going to be determined by the most difficult land to work on. So that, that might seem weird, but let me just explain. So if you arrive on an island and there's a bunch of fertile land and there's a bunch of not so fertile land, you're going to start by working on the most fertile land. Like, let's say there's just a few people, you know, you're going to work on the land that's going to give you corn super easily and you're going to be able to supply for everybody there. Now, as time goes on, your population is probably going to grow. And because that land can actually give you more corn, you're going to need to then go to the next piece of land. So let's say you go to this next piece of land and it's not as good. Uh, you know, it's really, it's, it's really crappy land, in fact. You're going to need to set your prices of the goods you make in accordance with the difficulty of that more difficult land. Or else, and assuming a lot of time has passed and there's a big population here, or else that land and the people that are actually exploiting that land through labor, through work, aren't going to be able to be competitive with the easier to work on land. So in the case of food, where everybody needs it and you have to meet the demand, what needs to happen is that the worst land needs to set the market price of the good that is being made or of the goods that are being made on that land. Because if the easiest to work on land set the price, they'd be able to set the prices real low. And that won't actually cover the cost of what it takes to work on the worst land. And so that worst land, no one will want to work on that worst land. There will be no means to, and then people will starve. Now the same applies uh, as you go on here. So let's say that second plot of land is now, you know, you, you need to go beyond that. So you now pursue a third plot of land and that one's even worse to work on. Now that land is going to set the price of the entire uh, market. And that land is, this is the real kicker here, is for Ricardo not going to be paying any rent. In his formula, he says that the worst land does not pay any rent. And the reason for that would be that the what comes out of the, uh, the what the capitalist earns on the worst land has to just cover the cost and profit that is baked into uh, what needs to be earned in order to keep that land going. So no extra can come out of it, which means that there can be no amount allocated to a landlord. So the worst land, and again, this is all according to David Ricardo, the worst land will pay no rent because all of its money has to go to keeping that industry, that land going. And there's no extra, because if there was extra, then uh, new lands would have to be cultivated. He's really talking about the worst, the worst of the worst land here. And it also is going to set the prices of goods of that good uh, on the market. Now, you might say, if you're, if you're listening, you might think like, well, that makes no sense, because what landlord would rent out that land if they're going to earn nothing on it? And that is exactly what Marx is going to get to. 
by showing that David Ricardo is full of garbage. David Ricardo just was totally wrong about this thesis. But again, if you want more on that, I've done some episodes on it if you, if you want to get into the weeds of it. And that puts us here into chapter 39, which is called uh, the first form of differential rent. So we get this idea of differential rent from Ricardo when he writes that it is the, in his words, the difference between the produce obtained by the employment of two equal quantities of capital and labor. So this is, he's talking here where if you had two pieces of land where you had equal capital and equal labor applied to both, one yields more because it has an extraordinary situation. Like it might have a river and that is able to make work happen faster with um, less money or you're, you have to be applying the same amount of capital and labor. It just makes it so that more products can be made more quickly because you have this river turning some mechanism that you need in your factory, whatever, on your farm, whatever. Now, rent must come out of the land that is the best to work on. So if we go back to the David Ricardo example, we have lands one, two, three, four, five, and five is the worst and one is the best. Five pays no rent and sets the market price of the goods. Land number one pays the maximum rent because they're earning so much extra surplus value. It's super easy to work there. They don't need to apply. Uh, they're able to extract so much more surplus value out of workers, you know, and so on. The second plot of land earns a little less than that, but still earns a ton of surplus value. The third land one, a little less, fourth one, a little less, and then the fifth one, none. So it is the first plot of land that's going to set the maximum possible rent because they are extracting the most surplus value. So now Marx doesn't totally disagree with Ricardo. He just proves that there are different factors to consider here because really what I just said is kind of all that Ricardo gives us. So the progress of the market, for example, uh, might go from worse to better soil or vice versa, or it might get better than worse than better. So what's the point in saying this? Well, what Marx is saying is that it's not so simple as just starting at the worst land or the best land, sorry, and working to the worst. Like you might find some new plot of land that's better than the first one later on down the line, and that might throw everything out of whack, out of whack. Now, in any case, he gives credit to Ricardo to say that it will be the worst land that's going to set the price. The worst land is going to determine how much the price of the good will cost, because otherwise, if it was the best land that set the price, then the worst land wouldn't be able to compete. And remember, we're dealing with a good that is absolutely necessary here, like corn or food, just generally, that needs to be cultivated from the land. So this means that all of the other lands, that is not the worst land, they're just earning exorbitant surplus value. So as time goes on, so you started with the best land, went to the land that's worse than that, then worse than that, then worse than that, and so on. Every single time you've done that, that means that the amount of surplus value that is able to be extracted from the first land has gone up at an exponential rate. I know I'm not, I'm not using the term exponential properly there. Please forgive me. Uh, it's increasing at, a, at, a, at an alarming rate. Every single time new land is cultivated just because the prices are going to need to come down in order because the worst land is going to set the prices of the goods which means that the new land or the first land is going to be able to extract so much, so much more 
uh, surplus value, they're going to be able to make those products, make those goods, make that food so much quicker, so much easier, and extract so much more surplus value. So it's like, so he, he posits or he illustrates or speculates that in a, a system of association, which would be communism, one of, these are one of the moments that he describes it, it would look at this and say, the situation of worse land being procured. He would say, or it would say, these extra profits aren't going to the people. They're going to the landowners as rent that they didn't work for. So because the best lands are the ones that are paying rent, it, you know, anyone with a head on their shoulders would say, wait a second, why is this landlord who just happens to own this land, probably because they had wealth from their family, or it doesn't even matter how they have it, why is this landlord earning more money as the population grows and the need to pursue worse land increases? So we need to pursue uh, worse land. Workers need to work harder in the whole grand scheme of things. And all this does is it earns the landowners more rent from the best land all the way down to the second worst land. Or in other words, all the lands that yield rent. Like it would make so much more sense if that money was instead appropriated for the people at large, which would also benefit the landowners, like having it go to, for example, uh, healthcare that is going to be able to provide for everybody, which is just a, you know, it's a liberal example, but I mean liberal in, as in like centrist, uh, liberal American ideals. It's not the utopian solution, but just to illustrate the point, uh, I'm putting that out there. So another way that Marx nuances this is by considering how rent is calculated. If it is by acreage, like the size of the land, or by the capital invested, this will likely happen most on worse soil. Because the worse soil is probably going to have to be the biggest to yield to be able to meet the demand, and more capital is probably going to need to be invested onto it in order for that soil to actually reap uh, some crop. So if that is the case, it means that the value of that land would be higher, right? Because it's probably bigger, probably has more capital invested in it, yet it's not yielding any rent, which also means that it's not worth anything, according if we look at David Ricardo's formula. So if we hypothetically took all the rents of all the lands and added them up, then divided them, so we found the average, after a period of expansion, there might be a decrease in the average rent because the size of land or the investment in industry in worse cultivated soil that yields no rent has gone up. So if as, uh, I guess, industry grows or as agriculture grows, more worse land needs to be worked on, more money needs to be spent on it, and more land therefore yields no rent because it's the worst land, then that means that we could see that maybe there's been uh, an actually a decline in the to total amount of rent that is being allocated. Now, another thing that David Ricardo says is that uh, rent only comes about relationally. So between like good, good land and bad land, uh, bad lands. It's a, it's a good movie. I think it's a good movie. I watched it a long time ago. I have no idea, actually. I think I remember liking it. Anyway, so Ricardo's formula also makes rent only a relational phenomenon between industries. Marx points out, on the other hand, 
that historically rent can increase when there is an absolute increase in fertility. So like, let's say there's a, there's a drought or, you know, a famine or like terrible weather that affects all the lands that's going to affect the rent. It's not just relationally as, um, as Ricardo suggests, there are other factors to consider here. So ultimately for Marx, rent might go up, it might go down for many different reasons, not just the need to cultivate new land and the variations that we can see uh, differentially between different kinds of land. And other points to consider that Marx gives us here, so for example, maybe worse land is better situated, like let's consider this as well. The worst land, the least fertile, might be better situated. It might be closer to um, a body of water that, or like to a, a trading route on a body of water or something. So it's easier to transport the stuff or it's closer to a city. Or maybe the worst land is just just among the best lands and it doesn't make a difference. Or um, what is perceived as bad soil actually happens to yield the quickest returns. Uh, where it might not yield long-term returns, but it gives you... And these are all just points to show that David Ricardo just didn't give us the full picture in his analysis. And that puts us here into chapter 40, the second form of differential rent. Now, in this chapter, Marx provides many tables with a breakdown of numbers of rent prices and stuff. And in chapter 43, which Engels steps in during uh, for the whole thing, I think, he says that Marx is kind of wrong in the tables. It doesn't change the nature of the argument, but Marx exaggerates some numbers, which, and Engels corrects this and shows, while well, that Marx is still right, but he was kind of wrong with some of the numbers. But anyway, so chapter 40 here, the second form of differential rent. So whereas differential rent one was concerned with variations in output of equal capitals because of the land, differential rent two considers the unequal distribution of capital. Now, I want to say that earlier, I know I divided up differential rent as, as differential rent, rent one, two, and three, um, which here he's only going to be interested going forward or considering differential, uh, different, differential rents two and three. And he considers them as one and two, where he says that he's only interested in differential rent one as though it was just differences in fertility, not like an extraordinary thing where there's like a river. And differential rent three, which he now calls differential rent two, as being situations in which there's just more capital invested in one land over another, where there's more uh, more investment there, which means that rent can go up on it or the landlord can charge more. So that's why here he considers differential rent two as this moment or this possibility of rent going up based on more capital being invested. Now, this is a short chapter, and he gets into it more in the next chapters, but he says that the only point he wants to really stress here is that if capitalists invest more capital into their production, rent will go up. So the capitalist profit rate may stay the same, but their absolute rent will have gone up. Because the landowner is like, look, this land is worth so much more now. There's all this infrastructure. But the capitalist has to still pay to upkeep this stuff, or there are situations in which that's the landlord's responsibility, and there's so many things to consider, and he doesn't go into that here. The main point is to show in this chapter, very brief one, and then in the next episode, the next chapter, he's going to start to consider more specific examples. The point here is to stress that as capital is invested, rent can go up. But that means 
that more and more of what the capitalist earns is going to go to the landlord in terms of rent. And that'll put us here into chapter 41, differential rent two, the first case, the price of production being constant. And that will end off here and we're gonna pick up with chapter or episode eight in that one. Uh, for those of you that have listened this far, you're doing amazing work. I really appreciate it. I hope I'm, I've been helpful in illuminating this stuff for you, making it clear. Um, and if you have any questions or concerns, definitely leave them in the comments. I'd love to read them. Uh, if you found this in a podcast platform that lets you leave reviews, you could leave a good one and it would mean a lot to me. And um, yeah, on that note, take care.